Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual violence and sexual assault. My name is Darren Dorsey. I'm an expert in sexual violence prevention and organizational equity and co-founder of Rooting Movements, which is a consulting firm that helps organizations ensure that their internal practices are consistent with the values that drive the change they intend to make in society. In this podcast series, I'm speaking with Black leaders, advocates, and movement workers about their experiences in the movement to end gender-based violence. Today, we're speaking with Valeriana Chakoti Bandua Estes. I'm excited to interview Valeriana, um, and I previously worked with Valeriana um, at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, where she served as an executive director. Recently, her and I's experiences of anti-Blackness were reported in a uh, Mother Jones article um, written by Madison Pauley titled, How the Mainstream Movement Against Gender-Based Violence Fails Black Workers and Survivors, in addition to a number of other Black movement workers who were also highlighted. We encourage you to check out this article and read it before uh, listening to this podcast. Valeriana Chakoti Bandua Estes is a former refugee from the country of Angola. She's indigenous to the Ovimbundu tribe in the southern region of Angola, Born in the neighboring country of Zambia, due to a bitter civil war, at the age of three, Valeriana's family fled the country of Zambia and found refuge in the country of Papua New Guinea, where she was subsequently raised. In 2007, she moved to the USA as an international student. And as life would have it, in her request to just obtain her bachelor's degree, the United States became her second home. She served as a human rights diplomat in the United Nations for the country of Angola. She's a TEDx speaker of the talk titled, Protect the Girl Child. As the founder of Necessary Interruptions, Valeriana takes an abolitionist approach as a racial equity consultant for businesses, agencies, and organizations looking to center black liberation, operate through an anti-oppressive lens, and build safer spaces for black communities. In addition, Valeriana is the Interim Executive Director at the Social Justice Fund Northwest, a newlywed, a Tacoma resident, and a recent greed card holder after a 13-year-long journey of navigating the labyrinth of the U.S. immigration system. All right, Valeriana, thank you so much for joining me for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center podcast. I'm so super welcome. excited to chat with you today. Um, this podcast series is about anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence. Um, and we actually, we set up this interview, I want to say about a month ago. Yep, we sure did. And we between sure did. then and now, uh, <laughs> an article has come out about your experience in particular, um, right. and an experience I was, I was also present for, um, which was your experience at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs. Um, and so I'm super excited to dive into that, to dive into your experience in this movement as a Black woman, um, 
your experiences addressing anti-Blackness um, and hear more about your experiences. Thank you so much, Darren. I uh, just appreciate this opportunity. And um, it's kind of wild that when we were mapping this out, um, we had no idea that this publication from obviously the Mother Jones article would come out. Um, and so I think timing is everything, clearly. Um, and yeah, I look forward to being able to um, respond to the questions um, that are being asked today. And my hope really is for listeners um, who may have just stumbled on the Mother Jones article, or maybe it's being widely shared within your organization, that you take a deeper look at how and why anti-Blackness often persists in specifically, I would say, nonprofit spaces. Um, it, it is violent, um, and there are a lot of intersectionalities around it. I am so excited to dive in. So let's let's jump in. Uh, my first question is, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what has brought you to the movement to end gender-based violence? Thank you for asking. So um, I'll start with my name. Um, my name is Valeriana Chicoti Bandwa uh, Estes. I go by Estes as well. Um, I'm newlywed. Um, and um, I am a former refugee from the Republic of Angola. I'm indigenous to the Ovimbundu people group in the Southern part of Angola. Um, I was actually born in the country, neighboring country of uh, Zambia. And my family eventually sought refuge in Papua New Guinea, near Australia, where I grew up. Um, and then I moved to the United States in 2007. So I definitely have that international background and just also being a survivor um, of violence very early on in my life and gender-based violence, also sexual violence. Um, unfortunately, um, those levels of oppression really opened up my eyes so early on to the need to be around um, community spaces and folks who were centering really a, you know, a survivor-centered uh, lens. And so early on in my life, um, I was involved in this work. Um, and unbeknownst to me, in so many respects, this work was always calling me. And so naturally, by the time um, I migrated to the United States, um, my advocacy um, with specifically like immigrant populations, refugee populations, really began to grow and flourish, um, whether it was like on a college campus um, and small community uh, meetings we're having or town hall sessions, all the things. Um, it essentially evolved in my journey and actually, you know, moving to uh, Washington State and actually working um, at Wixap. And one thing I do also want to make a mention of is that there was a period of, of time in my life when I when I saw this work more, more so from a diplomatic sense um, and having served in that capacity as a former diplomat, um, I really came to that realization that as much as um, that position was great and that opportunity was amazing. Um, I actually felt a, a huge disconnect specifically with um, victims and survivors of violence um, just because uh, when you serve in the aspect or the arena of diplomacy, a lot of the work is actually based in soft power. So, you know, there are policies and procedures that are created um, to champion, you know, survivors and victims. Um, of violence and specifically depending on what committee you work on. And I worked in the human rights committee. Um, and it was just like a deeper realization that like my, my first love is actually working like directly um, with folks and really having 
uh, I would say like a closer sense to like the programmatic work, like what's actually taking place on the ground, who needs to be supported, who's being left out. Um, and also examining how anti-Blackness can even show up in those spaces as well. Um, and I think we're seeing it right now, even in the world stage, you know, obviously as folks have been focused on what's happening in Ukraine. And then interestingly enough, um, in the mix of all the violence and folks who are actually refugees fleeing um, uh, Ukraine and getting to other countries for safety, what we're actually finding out or what is now showing up in, on, on new uh, streams or platforms is that Black um, survivors and victims of violence as well are not getting uh, forms of safety. They're not being advocated for. And so I think it's just important to note how anti-Blackness shows up in such a variety uh, of different ways. And um, in many respects, I think that that's what really fuels my work and what's brought me um, to this movement. And I've been in this movement, I would even say for over 20 years, mm -hmm. um, when I think of just my own lived experiences, but all those community spaces that I was involved in early on in my, um, life, in my life and even now in my adulthood. And so, um, Something I did notice when I first came to Washington, I moved to Washington, so many people wanted to just welcome me into the movement. And I'm like, uh, you know, historically, I just want to put it out there. Black folks have been involved in, mm -hmm. um, and speci specifically Black women, have been involved um, in really championing, you know, the rights and just the well-being of the most most vulnerable folks in, in, in community groups or populations. And um, I think that that disconnect, I think, even early on in my uh, uh, me arriving in Washington was just that recognition that I think there's a disconnect in the ways in which people see Black contributions, mm -hmm. um, that there's been a huge erasure um, and it's been happening for such a long time. And it probably also speaks to why um, there's a default to actually center more white women in leadership uh, or, in, or in spaces of leadership, even on boards versus like black, indigenous, brown and folks of color. Um, and while I would even go as far as to say that when specifically you are a black woman and you hold a level of power, there is a level of persecution that can come um, with that. And I definitely had that lived experience and I'm still in many respects reeling, but also healing from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a, a really, really interesting lens that I think a lot of people can can uh, hopefully benefit from and, and hear and integrate in their experience in this movement. One thing that I, I would like to follow up on is, is this idea that you came to the to Washington and, and folks welcomed you into the movement. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's an important point to me because I... Um, I think oftentimes people only see participation in this movement in particular ways, in right. organizations, in right. certain pathways that are legitimized or academic or something like that, where, you know, if you go back to the history, the, the grounding, the foundation of this movement, there weren't no organizations, there were not, okay. you know, there were not these government funded organizations, there were folks who were in their communities organizing. Um, and it sounds like that's what you've been doing all your life. Right. And when you got to Washington, folks just kind of dismissed all of that background that you that you brought into the that you brought to the table. Yeah, um, I think honest, and I, I appreciate you asking that or even like segueing to that, because I think the erasure is so real. 
Um, in that when I think of Blackness and just Black spaces and community groups and the ways in which we have shown up for each other, it is, a, it is not just a cultural nuance, it's a way of life in that being individualistic, especially when harm takes place in our communities, hasn't necessarily been the default. Um, I think of even, you know, here, here we have like just not that long ago, years ago, where um, Tarana Burke was this, you know, a starter of um, the Me Too movement. But because a white woman um, specifically shared that hashtag, um, all of a sudden folks are, were being enamored by her. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for a second, you know, Tarana Burke was almost erased. It and was real close. Yeah, she very, had to work really hard to, hard to get the recognition that she needed. Exactly. And I often think of the fact that like when we look at history, how often has that taken place or shape um, where a black person could be a black man, could be a black trans person, could be, you know, a black woman or or, um, someone who's, you know, even a youth member has shown up in a way in which they have contributed greatly and immensely and the erasure takes place. Um, and then everybody's like centering like some other institution and specifically like a white led institution and they're getting like, you know, a pat on the back. Um, and because maybe they have more avenues um, around like funding streams that they are more legitimized. Um, and so um, when I think of how structures typically take place, especially in these United States of America around like, you know, you need to have like the 501c3, you need to have all of these things in this particular order, we have to recognize that we live in a world where whiteness and specifically white supremacy governs the ways in which we move, breathe and live. Truthfully, if we do not name that, I think it is difficult for someone to truly recognize how and why anti-Blackness persists in those systems. Because if something is not officially named in this particular way, it is dismissed. Um, It is dismissed um, in uh, mainstream um, um, organizations. And it's also dismissed when like maybe somebody is in need of like funds where they're mm-hmm. like, you need to have all of these specific things. And I look at that as like just barriers that specifically exist because um, if you look at indigenous communities, you look at brown communities, you look at black communities, even as you just go to the continent of Africa. Um, one of the main themes um, that I have seen is just also that collectivism, gathering together, gathering with the elders and um, making whether you want to call it subcommittees um, or um, groups that would even visit folks in their homes if they experience some sort of violence. Um, there's always just been this collective need to take care of vulnerable folks in a population or in a community. And um, yeah, it just blew my mind that when I arrived at Washington, it was like, I remember one person in particular uh, at a conference, um, this white woman said to me, where did they get you from? Wow. Um, and I, I, I remember having to ask her again, and I was actually in a car at the time, and we were, we were getting to a hotel. Um, it was like one of the first conferences I attended in California. Um, and um, a funder was in the car. And the funder even had like a flushed look on, on her face. Like, uh, that's, I don't know if that's an appropriate question to ask. And this, uh, this white woman who specifically, you know, has um, a level of notoriety in the Seattle area around prevention asked me that question again. Where, where did they get you from? Um, and in that moment, I realized I was being tokenized. She wanted to know my credentials. She 
because she was struggling to pronounce my name. I mean, I was already being othered. So all of those things were already showing up in that moment. And I was still expected to respond in a way where I wasn't offended. Right. And this, that's the one thing I realized when anti-Blackness shows up, there's this notion that when um, something violent is coming your way, you still need to respond to it with a level of decorum, diplomacy, um, and specifically the ways in which a white woman would respond. Um, and which is like, oh, always assume best intentions, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing where it's like, wait a minute, if the shoe was on the other foot, could I ask you the same question? And wouldn't you kind of look at me a little off um, for even asking that? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I, I remember um, reading about that piece in the in the Mother Jones article about you um, yeah. being asked that. And I, I very much recall um, from working at the Washington Coalition of, of Sexual Assault Programs that I think coming in, both you and I, yeah. We're uh, very cautious around some of these conversations just because mm-hmm. I, and I think, you know, most, if not all black folks are going to be cautious around um, interrupting microaggressions because that can often have grave consequences for us. Um, but I think another thing that happened is as we, uh, as we got to the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs and began working there, mm-hmm. we were the ones that were told, hey, we we want you all to help help us become anti-racist. Right. We want to interrupt racism. We want to interrupt white supremacy. Right. Um, and so I say that because I, I want that to kind of ground this conversation about your experience at this organization and the Mother Jones article in that, um, you know, we were very much specifically asked to address racism within that organization, within the membership, um, funders came to us and said, hey, we're super glad that you're here. Um, right. We want to address racism in, in our work, in our organization. Um, and that's that's what we attempted to do. Um, that has culminated in this article that came out a, a little over a week ago now, um, written by uh, Madison Pauly. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me just pull up the exact title of that article. It is called How the Mainstream Movement Against Gender-Based Violence Fails Black Workers and Survivors. And this piece is very much centered on your experience and experiences Mm -hmm. at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs. So we're going to dive a little bit into this story um, like we mentioned, we, you know, set up this podcast to talk about anti-Blackness in the movement and didn't necessarily know that this article was coming out, but I think it, it offers us a great opportunity to provide additional context and really help people understand everything that, that's going on there. Um, I really want to start is, is about the process. I personally, my, my NDA with the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs was, was time limited. And so I contacted Mother Jones and, and provided them, you know, with, with this tip and for them to, to then do a thorough investigation into this story. And that was in August of 2021. Wow. And yeah. it is now uh, March of 2022. March. I want to say that the article maybe came out in the last day or the day before the last day of February. Yeah. Um, so she had worked, Madison had worked on this article for... Um, I think over six months 
And I'm just curious, what is that, you know, I know that she was diving into what happened to you, reviewing documents, interviewing people for six months. What was that process like for you? Oh, great question. Um, I want to say that actually when Madison had initially reached out to me to interview, to try to interview me, um, obviously I, I, there was an NDA um, in my case. In my case, mine was not time limited. My NDA was actually for the rest of my life. I want people to pay attention to that for the rest of my life. So there was definitely a concerted effort to make sure that I was silenced. So there was basically, uh, you know, a public facing statement that was around, you know, these NDA, the NDAs for former staff um, would be essentially um, no more. And that came as a surprise to me. And I remember, you know, sending this obviously to my lawyer and my lawyer was just as surprised because Wixap. Uh, the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs did not even have the dignity to contact us directly. And then also like community members, just really concerned community members who'd reach out and they were like, did you know about this NDA thing? Um, And I just remember just the feeling of just feeling uh, again, disrespected uh, and, and just in shock again, around the levels in which Wixap would continuously go to erase me. Um, these concerted efforts of like, we will do everything, we will say everything, um, this will come across in this particular way, which is very performative, but we will never directly address um, Valeriana, like they will not come and talk to me at all. Um, and again, that to me just centers this um, this true lived experience that I think a lot of um, Black folks have is that when um, you specifically called out anti-Black violence, you are now seen as a dangerous person. Um, and in many respects, it's like uh, you are not only discredited, um, but there's this notion of like, you can't talk to her. She's angry. She's an angry Black woman. You've got to be really careful. And the, these are historical nu- nuances, I think, that that have happened. Obviously, they go way back to like um, where I would even say the early uh, uh, periods of colonialism to slavery, the Jim Crow era, to even what we're seeing now. Like, this is how this has always shown up. You know, when I I even think of when um, enslaved Black folks um, ran from a particular plantation, there was a warning that was put out. There was a message that was sent, like, if you find this person, um, here's what, um, here's a reward uh, as well, but also, you know, this person essentially um, will experience levels of violence if they're caught. And I say this because in many respects, the ways in which um, Wixap moved, especially when I was wrongfully terminated, um, was to put out this public statement and to even create this um, narrative of she left. You know, I didn't leave at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't leave Wixap. I was very dedicated um, uh, to this work and specifically around interrupting anti-Blackness and centering um, Black, Brown, Indigenous, and folks of color who were survivors and victims. Um, and um, because that obviously came to a head and um, folks wanted me to behave, specifically behave like a white woman. And I, I'm not capable of doing that because mm-hmm. I'm a dark skinned Black woman. That's never going to happen. Um, what was I, what, what ended up happening was, oh yeah, we'll push her out. Um, we'll specifically terminate her, fire her. And even in this termination letter, this termination letter will say you are discharged from your um, co-executive director position because you essentially got this co-director executive position with Michelle Dixon-Wall. 
But the weird thing about that um, wording in a termination letter is um, why then was Michelle Dixon Wall um, allowed to stay on at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs for two years? Mm-hmm. And why did my letter say discharge as like as though I'm a fluid? Um, you know what I mean? Like I have never heard that kind of wording in, in any professional right. setting, but that was purposely said, um, worded and narrated in a specific way, instead of actually saying you're fired from this. So mm-hmm. I wasn't really given like a due cause or anything like that. So um, going back kind of to your original question, um, the feelings that actually were brought up, you know, around um, Madison contact to me were just, you know, similar feelings to when I first, you know, uh, was wrongfully terminated and I actually sought out um, a, a black therapist. Um, the best thing I've done in my life. One of the best things I've done in my life. Yeah. No, um, I, I'm, I right there with game, you. Game freaking changer. Let me mm-hmm. tell you, you're a black person and you don't have a, a black therapist. Go get you one. Go get recommend. you one. Like really game changer. And she, we, we began to unearth together just like the areas of trauma um, that I've suffered throughout my life. Um, and specifically the, the journey that I went through at Wixap, where there was just a lot of anti-Black violence and how it persisted. And so um, doing that work at the same time as also being interviewed by Madison um, really brought up a lot of emotions because it was that feeling again of being betrayed. Uh, you know, I went back to the actual day when um, Wixap's board members without a quorum showed up in the office, violently showed up unannounced, told us to hand over the laptops. They even wanted our cell phones. And I think about um, that particular day. I liken it very much to even just my immigrant journey. Um, where I've had instances um, because I've, you know, navigated a variety of different visas in my life or immigration statuses, um, you know, from being, you know, a refugee to international student, all the things. And now I'm a green card resident um, of these United States of America, um, experiencing just the scrutiny um, that takes place where like you're being discredited because someone doesn't think that you belong somewhere. And they did that. You know, I, I, I don't want to say this just because um, this sounds salacious, but truthfully, what uh, what the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs did to me wasn't just to belittle and discredit me. Um, it was to kill me. It was to kill my spirit. It was to kill my joy. It was to kill my livelihood. And um, I think of even the mental health implications um, that I went through, um, you know, just even through my body. And had I not received the support, had I not been, you know, a part of a community or a family that loved me and championed me, and that's not everybody's lived experience. Um, I, I, I cannot even begin to think of how my mental health to this day could have um, deteriorated to a point where I, I may not even be alive. Right. I, um, I, I mean, for that. I, I often think about the fact that if you were not so resilient, if you were not so committed to interrupting anti-Blackness, committed to this movement, um, you know, these folks would uh, would be accountable for a lot more harm than they, they even are. Um, and, and there's a lot of harm here. There's a lot of harm that I think um, the Mother Jones article is kind of the start of, of naming uh, right. some of these things that happened, um, but we need to, ensure that accountability happens in this movement um, and build on this story. So while this this Mother Jones article is detailed, it could have been an entire book. There were, you know, many, many things that that both you and I experienced that that other staff and other 
folks experienced that were that were a part of this story and and you know I think Madison Pauly did a great job in in summarizing the the situation and and communicating what she could in in that space but um I'm curious what are some aspects of this experience that you want people to know about or understand that the article did not capture that is a good question there's probably a lot truthfully mm-hmm. that if I was to get into it we'd probably have to have like a five six part series Darren. I mean yeah it, it could be a book so it really you know, it really could, could be or a documentary or a movie but I mean what I would say is you know um some of the main themes that point out to me is the physical assault that I experienced at the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, a former staffer at Wixap, um, physically pushed me. I think that yeah. this this happened uh, right before the weekend, yeah. and we came back the next Monday, and that staff member was still there, um, yep. was was working, and they actually gave us an account of the situation that that was not true, that didn't include that that physical yep. violence. Um, and so I think that even even adds to the situation that not only did this happen, not only did people who were standing right there, who were in authority, um, witness it happening, but, but yeah. also this person did not face consequences, did not, you know, um, receive any sort of um, uh, discipline from the organization. And when you yeah. look at, at your experience where um, you know, as the, the article suggests, grievances were were fabricated against you and those yeah. were taken very seriously. Oh yeah. Um, we can very much start to see um, a pattern in, in, in a difference in how you're treated compared to other folks. Yeah, and I think what's deeply troubling is a lot of folks don't, I mean, there was a lot of other things that took place that, you know, Madison obviously highlighted. But one thing I just want to highlight again is Black people have been killed, murdered, erased for lesser things. Mm-hmm. I often think of the fact that if I lived in New York and this was taking place, who knows? Um, someone could have had access to calling the cops and I could have been you know, taken to uh, Rikers Island. You know, um, There are just instances upon instances where Black folks have been harmed in such a way where we've not even had the opportunity to give an account for... Um, the accusations and the harm being hurled against us. Right. Um, and so for me to even have this opportunity to speak truth to power, my hope is that folks who have had this narrative or notion that, well, this was justifiable or this was uh, on this basis, you'll think really deeply about the fact that could this have happened to a white woman? Right. Well, and I think you could, you can even look at, at you know, again, the fact that um, Michelle Dixon-Wall, who's, who's named quite a bit in the article, her yeah. last day is today. So even yeah. after this article came out, right. after it's become clear that she fabricated the allegations against you yeah. um, and all these other issues that, that are clear in the article, um, uh, that departure is a, is a lot less sudden than yours, a lot less oh, sudden than the so. way they treated you. I do want to, I want to come back to the, the moment of truth letter, but yeah. before I do, I want to ask you, I know for me personally, when this happened, when the the Wixap office shut down um, and people began to see that this was clearly a response to to you and and myself um, trying to hold the organization accountable for racism and anti-Blackness. I I had some folks who came to me and said, hey, I want to support you. Um, What they're doing is wrong. 
Yeah. And a number of those folks still support me today and I, and I support them and we're, we're still in community and I'm very grateful for them. But I also had uh, one or two folks who came to me and said, hey, I want to support you. Um, what they're doing is wrong. I don't want to be affiliated with them. I'm not going to work with them anymore. But then, you know, just a year later, some short time later, they're then taking contracts with Wixap, not not reaching out and saying, hey, this is what I'm doing, you know, no accountability at all, um, but instead just distancing themselves from us and, you know, taking on these lucrative contracts. I, I do want to just mention that, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people might not understand around accountability is when these, when harm happens, um, for somebody to contract with an organization, to do trainings with an organization, while that harm hasn't been addressed, while Black folks are still silenced by NDAs, while the, the perpetrators of that harm are, are still employed, very much legitimizes that institution and that organization. And, and that organization can then look and say, hey, look at, let's, let's forget about these Black folks we harmed and let's, let's instead focus on this important work that we're doing. Um, so I just, I just wanna name that dynamic because there is a very real harm that, that comes from people um, engaging with, with, with organizations or individuals that do harm um, and, and, you know, again, we can, we can make parallels to the type of harm that we address in this movement, where if we have a perpetrator of sexual violence, right. if you associate with them, you're giving them a level of credibility. If you're not holding them accountable for the harm that they did, then, then you're complicit in the harm that, the, that, that person is continuing to do. Um, and so I just, I just want to mention that piece because I, I don't know if folks don't understand it or, or, or what's going on there, but I just think it's really critical for people to understand that, that giving credibility to an institution that's giving harm is, is complicity with that harm. I think so too. And I think the, the, the concerning piece about it is it just speaks to how black folks are dehumanized. So we're not seen fully as human beings. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in this country when we were considered, you know, three fifths of a human being or a person. And I, I see how that's also carried on intergenerationally, um, where there are actually folks that know that, hey, I wouldn't treat or behave in this way um, with anyone else. But specifically when a Black person shows up, it's time to scrutinize. It's time to um, ask questions like, I'm just curious. And that curiosity never exists when it's another white person who is actually perpetrating the harm. And I, you know, I just, I think it's just also important to note that, um, the fact that here we are on what, 11th of March, 2022, and to this day, the Washington Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs has not issued a public apology or acknowledgement for the anti-Black violence that I experienced and you experienced um, is baffling. Mm -hmm. And I often think of the fact that um, 90 plus percent of WICSEF's funding is publicly funded how will they give an account to specifically to black survivors of violence and victims of survivors of violence? How, how does that sit with WICSAP? Because I've right. definitely written an email to the, to the current board to name all of these things. And I, I have not received a response at all. And I think it's really troubling for any sister coalitions or coalitions that do work with WICSAP who are not holding WICSAP accountable, because I honestly believe that the integrity of WICSAP is not just 
on the line. The integrity does no longer, no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And because it no longer exists, I think we all have a collective duty to hold Wixap accountable. I think there's a collective duty for folks to even reach out to Wiskative and say, hey, executive director, here are these things that are being named. How are you rectifying harm? How are you all approaching this um, and centering, you know, survivors? Are you right. approaching this from, you know, a, a lens that is trauma informed, or are you just perpetrating more harm, covering stuff up, writing these statements that sound so sexy um, in the field that here you are rectifying harm because you've hired black consultants that you're paying, who you actually, when you both you and I, we we do racial equity consultation, training, facilitation, and and work around anti-Blackness. And here we were being pushed out of an organization that said it, it was committed to these things. Right. And then they go on to hire white women who then are paid by the organization to hire Black women as consultants to train them and, and do workshops to teach them about anti-racism so that they can hopefully in the future implement that in the organization. I mean, that just, that really seems like a, um, not a very efficient way for us to be spending public funds. Um, I do want to, in terms of talking about Wixap's response to this, I, I do want to name what their statement was. So this is, this is quoted from the article. Um, it says, in a statement, Wixap's current board of directors apologized to, quote, those who those people who feel disrespected, end quote, by the organization. Quote, Wixap has undergone many changes over the past three years, including a complete turnover of the board, they wrote. While none of us served on the board at the time of these events, we take all claims seriously and are working to address past and present harms to ensure a stable anti-racist future for Wixap. So I just want to provide that context so people can kind of see what the response has been from the organization. I will also name that, that there are current board members at the organization who were involved with signing NDAs um, and joined the organization um, in the spring of 2020 when, when the organization was um, working to ensure that we couldn't tell our stories. Right. Um, so I want to provide that context to folks who are listening to this, but I, I, I also want to move on to ask you a question um, about uh, the Moment of Truth letter. So in June 2020, 47 state and territorial coalitions signed onto the Moment of Truth letter that essentially named uh, dynamics of anti-Blackness and racism in this movement and the ways in which uh, Black survivors, BIPOC survivors and advocates have been dismissed. And instead, the movement has gone in a direction of um, incarceration, uh, working with, working alongside law enforcement, working alongside corrections. And not to say that we should have absolutely no connection with these institutions, but instead, um, these connections are, are incredibly, incredibly strong in the movement and a lot of movement organizations now. Um, and so this happened shortly after George Floyd was, was, was murdered. Mm -hmm. um, this letter came out and it very much said that we want to interrupt anti-Blackness, we want to change, et cetera. I encourage people to, to look up Moment of Truth letter and, and read it themselves if they haven't seen it. Um, 
And at the time, June 2020, uh, I believe that both of us were in uh, contact with Wixap trying to settle our, our discrimination claims and they were working to silence us with these NDAs and they signed on to this letter. Right. I'm just curious, you know, what that, what impact that had on you to see this organization sign on to this commitment while they were at the same time engaging in anti-Black violence, attempting to silence you? I, I gotta ask, you know, you know, historically, any space, any organization, corporation, institution, coalition, or community group that has a foundation of anti-Black violence, how do you expect to make uh, a profound mark historically? Because one day history will come back to this moment and people will be tasked and asked, why were you involved in this? How come you moved in this way? The fact that this story is now out in this way, and I mean, I can say to this day, I've just been overwhelmed with you know, tears of joy. I think that that's the best way I can describe it with folks who've reached out and, and have said, I am so sorry you went through this. I believe you. I believe you. I just want to stand with you. I, I can't believe you went through this and you were still like showing up in these other ways, organizing and helping other folks. I just think of my Blackness and how my Blackness is a representation of what my ancestors have had to navigate in this entire world and how they've existed and through so many errors in this world that have been so violently anti-Black, um, they still existed and persisted. I wonder if that's the resilience that I'm living and breathing because honestly, Darren, I've only read the article once and that's on purpose for my own mental health. And when I think of that you know, moment of truth letter that was shared out and specifically even by Wiskative and Wixap, um, I don't understand how they don't even carry levels of shame because I would, if I had been involved in this much, uh, or this, these levels of anti-Black violence, I wouldn't be going on a performative tour. I know that we definitely live in a capitalist structure and yes, anti-Black violence is alive and well, but isn't the whole point why we get into this movement and do this work is so that we can make a difference. Isn't it so that we can actually interrupt, um, forms of gender-based violence, sexual violence, domestic violence, or just violence period. Because the racial violence here is so raw and real. And I constantly think of the fact that the Me Too movement will um, specifically showed the outward facing things, meaning perpetrators obviously weren't part of the movement to end violence. They were being named. And everybody was like, I can't believe this person did this. I can't believe this person did this. But here we are in 2022. And it wasn't just the other day that even Rain, the organization Rain has fingers being pointed at them for the anti-Black violence, the homophobia, uh, the financial oppression that's taking place there. I actually truly believe that a reckoning is here and people need to wake up. And what this reckoning is actually saying is if you are leading a movement or a space and you are privately causing harm and publicly touting something else, history will also reckon with you. Um, and I say this loudly because I think of folks who came before me, uh, my time, and stood and told their truth, and they were syst systemically erased. Um, but their voices still echo through time, and history is still calling those names forth. And um, I truly believe that ancestors before my time um, are also seeing this, are also witnessing this. 
Um, I think specifically of the fact that there was a concerted effort here to create this narrative that we are this kind of institution or the or our organization, but but truly this is not who we are. We really don't care about black folks. I, I think deeply about the fact that here we are and living in a state that's considered quote unquote progressive, but yet um, it's just repackaged. The white supremacy is packaged in a different way um, and manufactured in a way where you have to, you literally have to play in your mind mental gymnastics to name, to find like, did this really happen to me? Was this how this was said? I sit here and I think to myself, when will these spaces whether it be Whiskative, whether it be KSARC, whether it be Wixap, or even member programs, um, it has been a part of the past at Wixap. I think of all of these spaces, when will you give an account for yourself? When will you stand in the truth, stand in the sun? Because at the end of the day, you may think you're getting away with something or you may justify your actions. But the ways in which this civil rights chapter is reckoning with everyone, no stone will be left unturned. I'm gonna just say that. Thank you so much for that comprehensive <laughs> answer to that question. I think folks will get a lot from what you just said. Um, and hopefully folks who signed on to that moment of truth letter are listening. Um, because I think there's there's certainly a role when you sign on to something with other organizations, other people, um, where there is a role where you need to hold them accountable. Um, their, uh, their behavior is going to reflect on you because you've done this together. You've signed on to this thing together. And so now this, unfortunately, in many ways, taints that moment of truth letter that I think, you know, ultimately, if, if done genuinely, is a great achievement and a great step for this movement. But when we have organizations or individuals signing on in performance yeah. that taints the entire thing and so what I, I i i hope that organizations that signed on to that can ask themselves what can they do to to address the way that this this uh letter has been tainted by those who have signed on in performative ways and and did not were not committed to interrupting anti-blackness um i do want to provide the the title of um, and the the author of the rain article that you mentioned, so that folks yeah. can take a look at that if they're interested. There's a lot of commonalities here, um, yeah. and a lot of commonalities in stories that have not been told. Right. Um, and so I think you know one of the the hopes of this Mother Jones article is that people who have had similar experiences of anti blackness in this movement, but have not been you know felt comfortable or, or been able or felt safe to talk about those experiences might feel safer might feel more encouraged to um to name that um but anyways the the article is called um insiders say rain um that's spelled r-a-i-n-n um the nation's foremost organization for victims of sexual assault is in crisis over allegations of racism and sexism. And that's by Bradford William Davis. I definitely encourage folks to uh, take a look at that. Um, Valeriana, what are you up to now? And where can people find you? Where can people access your brilliance? Thank you, Darren. Um, 
So I still um, have my racial equity consultancy, um, which is very much alive and well, and I'm pretty busy, but if folks want to reach out and find out ways in which I can either be a public speaker or do some workshops or some um, deep diving on interrupting anti-Blackness in your organization or institution, um, you can check out uh, necessaryinterruptionsllc.com or um, you can email me at valeriana at necessaryinterruptions.com. Um, and currently I serve at the Social Justice Fund Northwest as the interim executive director. I work with a bunch of radical, radical co-conspirators. I love my job. Um, I love the work that I do. It's a, such an opportunity to serve and to examine how we can mobilize resources, uh, monies in particular, and move it to grassroots-led spaces, groups, organizations. Um, and it's such a good way to also, again, interrupt white supremacy. And um, I just really want to give my folks at SJF a shout out, because even as this article came out, I shared it with staff, board members, and folks have just rallied around me and just been concerned about my mental health and wanting to see me, um, you know, fully heal. And um, I honestly feel so blessed that where I am in my life and what I get to do is very much in line with, again, interrupting violence, um, but more specifically also looking for ways in which the philanthropic um, uh, movement can continue to take this work to like a 3.0 level um, that really centers a stronger Black liberation-led lens. And we do that a lot at SJF. We're really exploring those nuances. So um, feel free to um, send me an email if specifically something I said resonated with you. Um, and my hope because um, the day is coming um, when I will be able to really give a full account of all the things. Um, so I am in the works of writing. I'll just put that out there. Thank you so much for having me, um, Darren. Um, I, am, I hope to come back at some point and we can like talk about how this journey is still very much unfolding. I appreciate you and for all the listeners out there, especially those who've had to navigate any forms of oppression and specifically anti-Black violence, I want you to know that you are not alone. Please do not play the mental gymnastics in your mind and having to like second guess did this happen. It did happen. I want you to know that I don't not only like feel those sentiments, but I believe you. Um, and my hope is that you can connect, reach out to myself and Darren, um, because we are mobilizing and we're building some really great and rad things. And the future is still bright, despite the ways in which white supremacy tries to show itself, um, because Black liberation efforts are here to stay. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I think folks are really going to get a lot out of this conversation. And, and I think we're going to be a stronger movement because of it. So thank you, Valeriana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that does it for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence. We encourage you to reflect deeply on what you've heard, what you've learned today, and think about how you can implement that in your communities and your organizations. We also welcome you to reach out to some of the guests in this series of podcasts for organizational technical assistance, consulting, training, and other services. If you haven't already, please do check out the rest of the podcasts in this series. This series of podcasts on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence includes five conversations that are five different perspectives in this movement, five different experiences. I think what you'll find is that sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't.
There's something to gather from each and every single one of them. And again, we encourage you to listen to the entire series of this podcast.